If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 tonight, it's on page 457 in your pew Bible. This week, as I mentioned just moments ago, Christians around the world and the world itself is paying attention in some way, uh, contemplating the crucifixion perhaps, celebrating the resurrection, no doubt, Christians. And so uh, tonight and next Sunday, we'll join them. We just finished the gospel according to Luke. I anticipate after Easter, we'll pick up uh, the faith, what I'm calling the faith of uh, our father, Abraham, will cover, Lord willing, Genesis 12 to 25 uh, over the spring and summer. We'll, we'll consider the faith and floundering, we might say, of our father, Abraham. Be encouraged by that. Uh, we did, as I said, just finished Luke. And at the end of Luke, you may remember, Jesus says the whole Old Testament is about me. In fact, it's about my crucifixion, my resurrection. And uh, Psalm 22 is one of the clearest Old Testament examples of that. It's often called the Psalm of the Cross. Of the 13 Old Testament, I'm just going to orient you to this psalm before we read it and study it together. But of the 13 Old Testament passages quoted in the crucifixion narratives in the Gospels, nine of them are from the Psalms. Five of those are from Psalm 22. It's so exact in its description of the suffering of our Lord that some have called it the fifth gospel. And uh, we might just pause there and reflect as you hear these words read. If you don't believe in prophecy, if you don't believe in the supernatural, you'll have a tough time with this one. It's a description by King David, not of illness, but of execution. And yet no incident in the life of David can be given to account for this. David died a peaceful death in his palace and on his bed. He never experienced the fullness of what is in this passage. In fact, crucifixion was not practiced at the time of David, nor for centuries afterward. Crucifixion wasn't a Jewish practice, but a Roman practice. But the Romans got it from the Greeks. Alexander the Greek learned it from the Persians, who invented it about 600 years before Christ. So 400 years before the Persians invented it. And a thousand years before Jesus endured it, David wrote about it. Now we need to distinguish here then the historical David who's writing these words and the the dynastic David. Distinguish between ancient King David who spoke here prophetically from King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who fulfilled this prophecy. It is prophetic, it is a prophetic picture of the suffering to be endured by the Lord Jesus. And it is convincing proof of the divine inspiration of the Bible and of God's sovereignty in the events of history. He purposed that Jesus should die like this. He prophetically announced it through his prophets literally centuries before it came to be. And then he sent his son to exactly fulfill this word and the circumstances surrounding it. Because God is sovereign over human history and the Bible is inspired. Now Jesus, as you hear these words, you may remember he had Psalm 22 in his mind. He's not just fulfilling it, but he actually had it in his mind evidently. 
while he's hanging upon the cross, from the opening phrase you're about to hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which Jesus takes on his own lips, to even the closing phrase where your, your English Bible says he has done it, which sounds an awful like, lot like Jesus saying it is finished, it is done. We're going to see that in a moment. So Jesus evidently used this psalm as he hung on the cross to give him comfort and help in trouble. And though our trouble is not identical to his, we can do likewise. There's comfort and help here for every believer. And so let me invite you to consider and listen to God's word from Psalm 22. Hear now the word of God. I'll be reading the inscription that's part of the word of God. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I could count all my bones They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father, we thank you for this word and that you are a God who speaks. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What is happening on the cross of our Lord Jesus and what good comes of it? A pastor friend of mine says Jesus died a death we could have never expected, suffered a pain we could have never tolerated to get us a glory we could have never earned. Tonight I want to walk you through the two big parts of this psalm in verses 1 to 21, his trouble And then 22 and following his triumph. Notice that structure in the psalm. Verses 1 to 21. You get the troubles and the trust of the Messiah. Troubles and trust. You see here his example to us of prayer in the time of trouble. There are three cycles actually of trouble. Verses 1 and 2. Again verses 6 and 8. And again verses uh, I believe it's 9 Uh, Verses uh, 12 uh, to 16, there are these cycles of trouble followed by his trusting in the Lord. But then there's a break at the end of verse 21, actually, and then 22 and following, where it moves to the triumph. There's celebration here. And you see here his example to us of praise in the time of victory. And so uh, two main sections of the psalm, the first section, verses 1 to 21, I want you to think about the troubles and trust of the Messiah. And we'll look at each cycle, the three cycles. Jesus once said that in this world you will have trouble. And of course he had it the most. What kind of trouble did he have and how did he handle it? How does that help us? In the first place, notice the first cycle, beginning at verses 1 and 2. You, you hear his spiritual agony 
in his cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, I I cry out to you by day. You don't answer by night. I find no rest. So then what's he saying? In the moment I need you most, I find you to be silent, is what he's saying. God feels utterly distant to him. You can, you can hear the pain in his soul as he cries out. Not just the trouble that he's in, but the silence of his God is what pains him here. Why is he so far from helping me? And yet, here he receives no answer. He gets no reassurance, no immediate word. He feels desperately alone. Now, don't be too quick to leap to Jesus' experience of that, which, of course, he experienced. But the language here is given that all believers might benefit by it. God wants his people to pray this. It was given by David to the choir master for the people of God to sing. This is the language of Christian faith here, friends. Why have you forsaken me? Why this trouble? And notice he's troubled, yet he's believing. He's calling out, my God, my God. He's not saying, I don't believe in you. He's not saying, I don't want anything to do with you. He's saying, you're my God and I want you. And so I just want to pause and reflect that believers can feel this way. You remember the experience of Ruth, uh, of Naomi in the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth, that Naomi had suffered a famine. She's gone with her husband to Moab there in Moab. Her two sons die and her husband dies. And then she returns to the people of God and she says this, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, meaning bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. God has made my life bitter, she says, call me bitter. Some commentators will say, well, she shouldn't have said that. Why shouldn't she have said that? God had dealt bitterly with her. Her two sons are dead. Her husband is dead. Call me Mara. This was a sign of faith on her part, not unbelief. This came from God, she says. My God. Not, she doesn't say God had nothing to do with this. She doesn't say, get away from me, God, I don't want you. She doesn't say, I want nothing to do with God. But for some reason, she says, God has made my life hard. And my life has been hard. He put me down a hard road. He sent me through the valley of the shadow of death. Yet he's my shepherd in that valley. He's my God. This can be the experience of Christians. There are, there are wise words about this issue in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, verse, uh, paragraph 4. If you want to know what the confession is, ask me afterwards. But listen to these words. Now, they were written in the 1600s. They're true today. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. As by, how does that happen? By negligence and preserving of it. By falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. By some sudden or vehement temptation. By God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. Yet... Are they never so utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. 
Not saying true Christians ever lose their salvation, but the assurance of it sure can be shaken when, in some cases, God seems really far from you and life is really hard. And yet God sustains you, they say. And they're right. God holds us as he did the psalmist, as he did Jesus. Uh, uh, Pastor J.C. Ryle, Bishop Ryle, the Anglican Church, put it this way. No doubt there is a sense in which the Lord's telling of being forsaken was peculiar to himself since he was suffering for our sins and not for his own. But still, after making this allowance, there remains the great fact that Jesus was for a time forsaken of the Father. And yet for all that, he was the Father's beloved Son. And as it was with the great head of the church, so it may be in a modified sense with his members. They too, though chosen and beloved of the Father, may sometimes feel God's face turned away from them. They too, sometimes from illness of body, sometimes from peculiar afflictions, sometimes from carelessness of walk, sometimes from God's sovereign will to draw them nearer to himself, may be constrained to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It can be God's aid to you, actually, to draw you closer to him, that you cry out from the depths. Christians can feel this way. Uh, If you say they can't, then what help would you be to somebody who did feel this way? And there are plenty of Christians who have. Now, Jesus certainly experienced this in a unique way. In Matthew 27, you you remember the gospel stories. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, darkness comes upon the earth for three hours. uh, And Jesus is in extreme anguish and he cries out the words of verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Until then, we have to say and recognize he had enjoyed an intimate and uninterrupted relationship with his father. That's all he had ever experienced. That's the only thing he had ever had. The enjoyment of that intimacy. In fact, in John 16, verse 32, you might look at it. He tells his disciples, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. The father is with me, he says. And yet here on the cross, he's not crying out, father, father. But my God, my God, why the distress? Why the change of language for him who was so intimate with his father? It was because Christ was made sin for us. And the father's blessing, the benevolent face, the kindly smile left his sin-bearing son as the father's curse against sin came upon Christ for sinners. So that Galatians 3 verse 13 says of Christ, God, or Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And so Jesus experienced, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Not because he deserved it in himself, but because he was in our place upon that cross. Abandoned to the judgment of God that we might never be abandoned to the judgment of God in him. 
Now notice that's his cry, verses 1 and 2, but notice what sustained him in the midst of that experience. Verses 3 to 5, this prayer of trust. Notice his language. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. He says, I know you're not doing anything wrong. You're a good and holy and perfect God. The people around me have done something evil. He doesn't deserve to be there. The hands of wicked men. But God is doing something good. The saving of many lives. And it was, it was, it was right for our salvation that he should experience this. And he's acknowledging it as the psalmist says, you are holy and yet, verse, and, and, and furthermore, verse 4, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted, were not put to shame. Do you hear the language of that? He, he calls to mind God's past dealings with believers. Sometimes in, in your own trouble, this is all you have. Right, Because God seems very far from you, but at least you can remember the record of God's faithfulness to believers in the past. Faith looks to God and to his covenant faithfulness. And so here he thinks back on the history of Israel. He remembers that God is faithful and that encourages him to trust in this God because God is trustworthy and he has proven himself so. Even though right now I can't see how he's going to be faithful to me. Or how this is part of his faithfulness to me. And yet this is who he is. Will not God also be faithful to me even though I don't sense it, he reasons. And that sustains him. That's the first cycle of trouble and trust. The second, notice in verses 6 to 8, not his spiritual agony as much as his social agony. The mocking of his enemies. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people, and all who see me mock me. He's treated here not like somebody made in the image of God, treated with dignity and respect. No, he's treated like he's something less than human by the people, a worm to be trampled on. They tell him, if you really trusted God, you wouldn't experience this. If you really believed in God, they say to him, you wouldn't suffer like this. If God really delighted in you, if you were really the beloved son, well, then this would not be your experience. And they scorn him and they mock him for his trust in God. And if you compare verses 7 and 8, the wagging of their head, uh, their mouths, uh, the words they say, you just compare that to Matthew 27, 39 and following, it's, it's verbatim. It's one for one. The body language and the verbal taunts. Yet notice his prayer of trust in verses 9 to 11. It's different from the prior prayer of trust. Here he takes encouragement from God's past dealings with himself. From God's past dealings faithful, in faithfulness to others to God's past dealings with himself. Notice uh, 9 to 11. Yet you are he who took me from the womb and you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near. In other words, you have always been mine and I have always been yours and you have shown that time and again in my prior experience. I know that I can count on you in this moment of crisis. Because you have been faithful to me and you will continue to be faithful to me because that's the kind of God you are. I want to say to all of us, 
this is, this is the experience we need to grow in. That, that, that a lifelong trust in God is the best preparation for future trouble. When you can walk through trouble in the future, looking back and saying, but at that point when I needed him, he helped me. And at that point when I needed him, he was there for me. I know he's faithful. Not just to the people of God, generally or in the past, past, but to me in my past experience. So that's the second cycle. Notice the third cycle of anguish at verses 12 to 21. And here... His physical agony certainly has highlighted the brutality of the crucifixion itself. Now at verse 12, he speaks of many bowls encompassing me, strong bowls of Bashan around me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. In verse 16, he speaks of dogs encompassing me, a company of evildoers encircling me. So it's not so much he's speaking really of animals, but the animals are the picture of people. The bulls of Bashan were well known for their size. They come from a lush area, well fed in the region known as the Golan Heights. And they tear at him like lions devouring their prey. They trap him like snarling wild dogs, not your pet animal, but the wild ravenous dogs. Crucify him, they say. Crucify him. That was the experience of Jesus. And terrible weakness comes over him. Verses 14 and 15. I'm poured out like water. What's he saying? I'm I'm, I'm a puddle. I've, I've lost my strength. I've lost my vigor. And all my bones are out of joint. None were broken, but they were dislocated. My heart is like wax, he says. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, uh, like a, like a, a broken uh, clay pot that's been baking in the sun and has become brittle. That's, that's how I feel. And notice the, the explicit details of crucifixion here. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is the um, experience at the end of death when the body becomes extremely dehydrated. He's thirsty here, desperately thirsty. They have pierced my hands and my feet here. And I can count all my bones and they gloat over me. He's hung naked upon the cross and his bones, all out of joint twisted, are visible to himself and in a state of humiliation before the scorning crowd. And they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots while he's still alive. They're playing games over who gets the little pieces of his, what property he had. Now, let's just pause and reflect on that in a couple of ways. One, I want you to think about sin. Sin never comes to you and says, it's evil, and I will destroy you, and I will destroy all that you love. It never says that. It comes to you and it says, this will be great. This will help you. You'll enjoy this. This will be good for you. Sin always says it's worth it. It doesn't say it's come to hurt you. But if you want to know what sin is really like, look at Christ's experience on the cross. Here you may judge its nature rightly, and here its guilt may estimate. But if you look at sin, as the old Puritans say, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. As you see sin, also notice the love of God here in this passage. You determine the love of God here. 
in this passage. You see the love of God, the Father who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all because he loves us. And in verses 19 to 21, you see in the midst of this tremendous trouble, you see again the prayer that sustains him and his trust. He, in desperation, he cries out directly, but you, verse 19, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And notice that last phrase of verse 21, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Here, it's emphasizing completed action. You have heard me. You have answered me. You have saved me. You have rescued me. I called out to you and you did it. So here is a great transition in the psalm. When it seemed absolutely hopeless and relief seemed impossible, nevertheless it came. There's a pastor named William Sangster. Uh, I think it was his dates are 1900 to 1960, as I recall. It's English. He tells the story of the Flixton, which which was a a small hull steamer ship going up the English Channel in 1918 during World War One, and Germany had developed submarines and torpedoes. And as it was making it up its way up the English Channel, the lookout spotted a white line coming swiftly toward the ship. And it was a torpedo from a German submarine, which was right at that moment uh, rising up to the surface to view the deadly damage it was about to inflict. And the lookout naturally gave a shout, and everybody on board ran to the, to, to the side of the ship to see what was happening, and it was absolutely hopeless. There was nothing they could do to help, nothing the dude could save them. It was too late to turn the ship away, and all knew that in just a few seconds, they would be blown to bits by this torpedo. And then Sangster says an amazing thing happened. Only a few yards from its target, something went wrong with the mechanism of the torpedo. It reared its nose out of the water. It turned course and shot straight and fast on the very path that it just traversed. And before those British sailors knew what had happened... They saw the torpedo smash back into the German sub from which it had come and blow it to the bottom of the ocean. That is how the end of verse 21 should strike us. When it seems absolutely hopeless with an impossibility of relief, then in the midst of that despair comes hope and help. Sort of like an empty tomb After a crucifixion. He heard me. He answered me, the psalmist says. This should comfort us. We should take comfort in this. God can do amazing things to rescue and help his people in their worst predicaments. So Jesus suffered here, verses 1 to 21. He suffered spiritually, socially, mentally, physically, emotionally. He remembered God's past faithfulness to the people of God. He remembered God's past faithfulness to himself. And he cried out in desperation. And in God's good timing, he got all the help he needed. Learn from that, as Peter says, to cast all your anxiety on the Lord because he cares for you. 
Now that's the first big part of the passage. Now the second, and we'll take it more briefly, is the fruit of his trouble. And the celebration of the victory of the cross, the triumph of the Messiah in resurrection. Notice at verse 22 and following. Was he delivered from death? No. Was he delivered through death? Absolutely. And suddenly here he speaks of praising God in a great assembly of worshipers where his deliverance from trouble is celebrated. Notice the language here. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. No longer on a cross, but in a crowd of fellow believers. No longer being mocked by those who hate him, but among those he calls his own brothers. And what does he do? A few quick things. One, he shares his testimony of God's deliverance with the family of God. I will tell of your name to my brothers, it says. Now, if you were to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the author says, says that this is exactly what Jesus did. That these, this is fulfilled in Christ. For it says, he, Jesus, is not ashamed to, be called, or to call them brothers. Saying, quote, I will tell of your, mind, of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise, uh, sing your praise. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, this is, the speaker here is Jesus. And what he says is, you are my family. I'm not, I'm not ashamed, he says, to publicly own you as my brother or my sister. And we've got to take this to heart. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He isn't embarrassed to be associated with you. He doesn't look among the people of God and find a crazy uncle that nobody likes or wants to think about or talk about and and agree. He doesn't do that. There's no crazy uncle he's unwilling to know. There's no son or daughter who has so scandalized the family that he is compelled to turn his face away. Oh no, he looks you straight in the eye and says, you are my brother You are my sister. I am yours and you are mine. We are family together. I was humiliated upon that cross that you might never have your shame cling to you in such a way that I should turn my face away from you in shame. I'm not ashamed of you. And so that's the first thing. He stands among his people and notice the second thing that he stands in the midst of the people praising God. Verse 22, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's gathering with his people in corporate worship. And he's calling on us to join him in praising God for answering his prayer. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he, that is God, has not despised. He has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And so Jesus is the first worshiper calling his brothers and sisters to praise God and celebrate his triumph. And finally, notice, again, I know we're covering this very briefly, but verse 27 following, notice he looks forward to the extension of the kingdom of God to all nations that people from every tribe and tongue and language and people group could be brought in to share 
in the celebration. Notice verse 27. It reads, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Verse 29, rich and poor, healthy and dying, Jew and Gentile, male and female, people yet unborn, all kinds of people, the psalmist says, are going to celebrate with Jesus just as we will do this week, as we do every Sunday. Not only will we rejoice in his crucifixion, but we will exalt in his resurrection. And so remember that Jesus was meditating on this triumph too on the cross. Not just his trouble, not just his trust, but he knew this was coming. He knew he was going to be successful and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He was thinking of us. He was thinking of you that all the ends of the earth could celebrate with him in the very moment of his death. He was thinking of you. And so this psalm is about his trouble and his trust and his triumph. Three quick points of application. Number one, take comfort then. Christ understands every bitterness you have ever tasted and yet he knows bitterness worse than you. He's sympathetic. Number two, follow his example. Trust the Father when you're in trouble. Cry out in desperation, Oh Lord, help me, I need you. Look back on his faithfulness to others in the past. Look back, if you're able, on his faithfulness to you in your past. Cry out in desperation. And know that he hears you. And in the third place, not only take comfort and follow his example, but trust in Christ. He is risen in triumph. And verse 31 finishes with these words. He has done it. His work is done. As Jesus says, it is finished. So that salvation full and final for every generation, for everyone who trusts in him is found in him. And his finished work in death and resurrection on our behalf. Trust in Christ for that salvation. And you'll be his brother, his sister. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for our Savior and our Lord. We stand amazed at the foot of the cross. Help us to grieve the sin that nailed him there. Help us to be relieved by the rescue we receive there and help us to look to a risen Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing and celebrate together. And I should say in this song, we are celebrating, but we are also looking forward to his return in glory for we live yet by faith and not by sight. And after the partaking of the supper, we'll sing of heaven itself and its glories.